All right, the third chapter of Romans in your Bible this morning, Romans chapter number three. And we're going to be looking today, Lord willing, at the first eight verses, although I will say uh, we may not get that far. Uh, That is certainly all right. I have no problem with that. But I want to draw your attention to an expression that is found, and we'll, we'll get to these verses around it in just a moment. But I want to draw your attention to verse number four. The Apostle Paul, as he continues to write to the church at Rome, he's been dealing with some very difficult and, quite frankly, to you and I today, very confusing subjects. He's been dealing about the advantages that the Jews had, and we talked a lot about the rite of circumcision last week, about circumcision being an outward sign of God's choice. But in spite of all of those things, I want you to see what Paul says in verse number four. He says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Look at that phrase, let God be true. Now, as you look at that verse, I want you just to glance back at verse number one and look at the section, the question that Paul begins this chapter with. He says, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Now, in chapter number two, Paul clearly proved that the circumcision alone brought nothing. In plain terms, this act even of obedience, did not bring anything to the Jew as far as salvation was concerned. But yet he concluded that there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. But yet this symbol of circumcision was given for a purpose. It was given for a reason. But the Jews were missing something. They were missing the standard of what is right and what is true. They were missing their standard of righteousness. It was clear that it was foolish to glory in something like the circumcision. It was foolish to glory in the receiving of the law. It was foolish to glory in the fact that they were Abraham's seed. Yet there's a question here, folks, that still remains. What was this profit or what was the purpose, rather, of this circumcision? The Bible makes a big deal about circumcision. We can't get around it. Many preachers have avoided it because, quite frankly, it doesn't preach very well. It's difficult to mold into some kind of a message, but the circumcision matters. But Paul wants them to understand that the purpose of the circumcision here wants us to understand even that God would not have appointed such an act if it didn't have some kind of a benefit. Now, what chapter 3 is, is Paul really is, act, he is answering an objection that's going to be made. He's answering an objection as to if the Jew, what gives the Jew an advantage? If it's not the circumcision, if it's not the law, if it's not the seed, what advantage do they have? What's the benefit? There's no question throughout Scripture you see that the Jews were often separated from a common class of man. The circumcision declared, these are the people that I've set as my choice. I've put my choice upon them. 
So the circumcision to the Jew acted as a wall. Everyone knows the purpose of a wall. A wall's intent is to keep something or someone out and to also keep that which is in from getting out. A wall is a partition. It is something that is meant to inhibit. It's meant to prevent. Paul calls these ceremonies and even the circumcision, he's going to call these things as something that is avoiding the real matter at hand. Let God be true. Let God declare what is truth. Folks, let God be true. God is the standard of all truth. And as a believer this morning, you and I ought to be fully aware and understand and accept and believe that true believers know this about God. God is always right. God is always truth. God never leads his people astray. Now, in chapter number three, we're going to get to the more familiar verses that you've heard probably, if you've been saved any length of time, you've heard them all of your life. But Paul is going to complete this section on the guilt that is common between the Jew and the Gentile. And he's going to come to the conclusion that all of us would very much agree with this morning, that all have sinned, that all stand in the need of judgment and that all that will be saved can only find salvation in the imputed, provided righteousness of Christ. All in chapter 3. We're going to cover all of that over the coming weeks. But begin again with what Paul says in verse 1. He says, what advantage then hath the Jew? Now, in order to understand why he's asking the question, let's review again quickly the end of chapter 2, begin in verse 27 and read down through verse 29. This will put us right back where we need to be. It says in verse 27 of chapter 2, And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And we came to the conclusion last week that although the Jews had the sign of circumcision, the Gentile, you and I, who believe have heard the gospel, we believe the gospel, and we begin to serve God, we have the evidence that the circumcision of the heart has taken place. In other words, we are just as much a child of God because not that we have the outward sign of circumcision, but we have the circumcision of the heart. Truly, outward religious forms, outward attempts to keep the law are nothing But yet it is the man who has the life-giving spirit with the law being written upon his heart. What Paul is talking about here is that the Jews had something that the Gentiles did not have. They did have advantages. Now, if we come to this conclusion today, and the Bible comes to that conclusion, if both the Jews and the Gentiles are dead in their trespasses and sins, what advantage did the Jew have? What did they live under? What was the benefit of the circumcision? 
as a distinctive mark. That's what he's asking there. What advantage then hath the Jew or what profit is there of circumcision? Now, here's what's interesting. Paul actually says their advantage was the next phrase, much every way. What he's basically telling them here is the Jews had, did have an advantage. They had an advantage over every Gentile. And he's going to go into the advantages that they had. Now, again, if circumcised profited nothing unless the whole law is kept, then what is the profit there? Well, he says if they have the law, they had the prophets, they had the ceremonies. He said in having all these things, here's what happens to the Jews. The Jews come under a greater condemnation. They come into a greater judgment because they did have an advantage. They had the advantage of something that the Jews, or the Gentiles rather, did not have. Folks, knowledge and light, please get this, knowledge and light increases our responsibility. Okay? The knowledge that you have today increases your responsibility to God. What God has given you is truth. You are held responsible, I am held responsible for the knowledge and the light in which God has given to me. That light and that knowledge has been given at varying degrees in different ways throughout all of history. What Paul is saying here is that the Jews did have an advantage. They had knowledge and they had light. If a person who's not truly born a Jew who is born of Jewish parents and is brought up in the customs and the ceremonies and the religion of the Jews, but yet the Bible says anyone who's born of the Word and the Spirit of God is part of true Israel. Folks, you've got to start to understand what Paul's trying to say here. He's trying to understand that we are leading to where there is this one church, and they are all that one church in Christ. Now, there's no question, and people have argued this, and this is not the stand that you have to take in a church to define your fellowship. But there are people who say you, that, that there, there has to be, God chose Israel for a particular and special purpose. And I'm telling you today, I 100% agree with that. I'm not denying that at all. But ultimately, what we're getting to is the point that all who will be his must be in Christ. All the ceremonies, the circumcision, all of the law, all of those things apart from Christ are nothing. But yet, knowledge increases responsibility. Light increases your accountability. What you and I know about God today, God holds you accountable for what you know. Now here's what we need to understand about the Jews. Think about this for a moment. Why would God have given them an advantage? If, as we read in our scriptures, we only find that most of Israel and even most Jews today would reject Christ. Now think about that for a moment because it is, it is a deep thought here. Why give the advantage to a people who will reject me? Yet the Bible says they clearly had an advantage. Folks, there's a truth that we're coming out. And remember, we all agreed that let God be true is a vitally important statement. Let God be true. 
Now, Paul says, what advantage did they have if there was no profit in circumcision? Verse 2, he says, much every way. That phrase is answering the question in verse number 1. The Old Testament Jews had this great advantage over the Gentiles. The Jews were what we're going to call, they were the bookkeepers. They were the chronicle keepers. They were the ones who were given the responsibility to guard the holy books, guard the scriptures. The Old Testament is the scriptures that they had. They were the, they were the gatekeepers. Now remember, you can be a gatekeeper of something and not know or not believe that which you're guarding. These were God's people. Notice it says, much every way, chiefly, or for the main reason, they had an advantage because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. This is an important word. The oracles of God. The Jews had these very real privileges, but what they were doing is they were misusing those privileges. It's like being given an advantage in something, and instead of taking advantage of it, you misuse it. They had the oracles of God. They had the knowledge of God, but they misused it. Now, this is important because this is what makes phrases and verses such as Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, make a lot more sense. Here's what Romans 9 says, verses 4 and 5. I know we're, we're months away from getting here. But it says, Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption? and the glory, and the covenant, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now, folks, I'm saying a lot, and the Bible's saying a lot of things we haven't gotten to yet, but understand what's happening here. Just because they're Israel does not make them true Israel. Just because they're children does not make them children of God. That's what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 9. And now that makes a little more sense because of what we're seeing in Romans chapter 3. They were given the oracles of God. What did the oracles of God include? Truth. The oracles of God were truth. They were the gatekeepers of truth. They were the ones who were given the word of God first. Before anybody else, they received the word. Again, knowledge increases responsibility. Light increases accountability. That's what this is about. This is about responsibility and accountability. They were to preserve it. They were to keep it true. They were to keep it pure. What was the purpose of the types and the illustrations and the sacrifices? Folks, what was the purpose of all of those Old Testament sacrifices? To preserve the truth of Jesus Christ. To preserve the truth of God's Word. No ceremony, even the circumcision, 
I hope we're getting this, was to just be something in and of itself. It was not the goal. The intent was through these oracles, through these rites, through these ceremonies, through your seed, understand you are to preserve truth. Let God be true. God revealed himself, revealed Christ in the Old Testament. That's why today any Jew that says, we do not believe Christ is the Messiah, is doing one thing and one thing only. They are refusing to let God be true. Because the Old Testament oracles do nothing but point people to Christ being, he has to be, he's the only possible Messiah. That's the conclusion that we're brought to. They had real privileges. The oracles of God, they were the first ones to possess the truth. The words that were uttered first by the word of God, by the mouth of God, the inspired word of God. We studied this on Wednesday night, and if you missed it, you missed a message you need to hear, not because I preached it, but because it's with regard to the Holy Scriptures and how important the Scriptures are. They are the oracles of God. It is the only standard of truth that you and I have. Truth does not reside in what you think or what I think. Truth resides in the oracles in the Word of God. What led the Jews down the wrong path? They refused to let God be true. They had to preserve the knowledge of what Christ had said. The Jews had prophecies about the coming Messiah. They had many pictures. They had hundreds of types of sacrifice. They had the atonement in their ceremonies. They had the promises of redemption. They had even the promise of forgiveness through faith. And instead of believing on him and confessing their guilt by what the law should have showed them, remember the law was only given to show man his guilt. Instead of repenting of the guilt of the law, and resting in faith, they took the law, they took the circumcision, they took the ceremonies, they took their Jewish heritage, and they established, get it, their own righteousness by that. That's what's happening here. They established their own righteousness. Instead of using those things, circumcision, as a type to point them to Christ, they used it as a measuring stick of truth. Is everybody following me? That's what they're doing. Now, it was given by God. It was an outward sign, and it's valuable. It was important. But here's what they did. They twisted it. Instead of being keepers of the oracles of God, they now began to use it to establish their own set of righteousness, their own terms of truth. All the laws, all the rituals, all the morality, all the ceremonies, all the scriptures, and all the outward form of godliness are of no value if they do not lead a person to Christ. Does everyone understand what I'm saying this morning? It doesn't matter what you do outwardly, if it doesn't lead to the conclusion that it's Christ and Christ alone, it's valueless. But it does not excuse their responsibility or their accountability. You had the truth, you failed to preserve it. As a matter of fact, instead of using these types and these pictures and these outward forms, 
You twisted them and misused them. Folks, understand something. The Pharisees were a special kind of, of twisters of Scripture. But do you understand that as a almost as across the board, most Jews who were not even considered Pharisees did not believe in these things. Now, they could blame the Pharisees. They could say the reason we as a nation refuse the Messiah is because our Pharisaical teachers told us to. That's not truth. You are responsible today. I hope you don't miss this. You are responsible for what you do personally today with the truth of God. You can't hold me accountable if I'm teaching you falsely. You are held accountable to know the truth. Let God be true. In other words, you can't live your life saying the reason I'm not living for God and the reason I don't believe in Christ is because that preacher at Springfield Bible Baptist Church taught me wrong. You have the opportunity to have the knowledge of God and what is true. Does that man who stands up before us every single week, does he preach truth or is he misusing and twisting the scriptures? You have to ask yourself that question. Every time I open this book, every time I open my mouth, you have to be challenged. Is he preaching and protecting and preserving the truth? And if I'm not doing those things, I am not letting God be true. But where is the truth found? In the oracles of God. If you're going to say that a man is not preaching truth, how do you disprove him? By Scripture. Show him scripturally where the truth is being misused. Now, what did, the, what did the Jews have? They had the Scripture. They had the actual truth in their hands, and yet they missed it. They had the forms of godliness. They possessed the oracles of God. Paul says in verse number three, he says, for what if some did not believe? This is an interesting question. What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Very simply, if people don't believe it, does it make God null and void? No. That's as plain English as I can give it today. That's what he's saying there. If someone doesn't believe... Does that mean the faith of God is null and void? And the answer to that is no. Unbelief does not affect the truth of God. You understand that if the whole world rejected Christ and not a single soul was ever saved, was never chosen for the foundation of the world, do you know that God would still be true? Sometimes our human mind, we don't want to go that far because we often base truth only on belief. In other words, if nobody believes it, then it must not be true. If God in his foreordination had determined that the whole world would go to hell, God would still be true. Unbelief has no effect on the truth of God. In other words, I can say a lot of things about God, but here's one thing I can't say. I can't say he's untrue. And my belief or lack of belief does not affect the truthfulness of God. If I was to say Israel was God's chosen nation, most of them disbelieved, does that mean God did something? Did God lie? No, he didn't lie. He gave them an advantage. 
And by the way, before we kind of throw the Jews out there and say, boy, they really messed this up, you understand the advantage that you have in our day and age when you have a completed copy of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. You probably have a Bible app on your phone. You have a Bible app on your computer. You can actually go home this afternoon. You have resources being put in your hand every single week. Guess how much responsibility you have. So before we say, oh, the Jews... Boy, they just really mess things up. What about us? You have more light and more knowledge than people even 100 years ago had. You can't even claim ignorance at all anymore. There used to be a time when there was not a copy of the Scripture somewhere, somehow, where people couldn't get... We've, I got 10 in my office. I got 10 Bibles back there, not including the ones I have on my phone and on my tablet and on my laptop. I've got the Bible everywhere I go. So what if we had all of those things and everybody in the world still did not believe? Would God still be true? God would still be true. But yet they had an advantage. What if some did not believe? What if most of the Jews disregarded the promises of God? What if they didn't believe in the prophecies of the Messiah? What if they despised and rejected? Have you read Isaiah 53? Despised and rejected. We sang, Hallelujah, what a Savior. That song speaks of the, re the rejection of Christ. And they rejected all those things, and they sought righteousness in their heritage and their rituals, their ceremonies, and even their circumcision. Did God not, did he, did he or did he not promise to bless the Jews? He promised to bless them. And even in all of those promises, the Jews as a whole rejected him. Here's an amazing thing. Do you realize God has even blessed unbelievers? We make a very, very, very bad statement when we say that God's blessing is not upon unbelievers. Day-to-day -day blessings, their unbelievers can claim some of the same blessings you and I have. You might say this morning, it's a blessing I have a job to go to tomorrow. Well, guess what? The unsaved have a blessing of a job tomorrow because God gave them a job. I mean, I hope we're following this. Because we think as believers, well, we just got all the blessings of God because here's the evidence I have the blessings of God. Unbelievers have the blessing of God on their life too from a day-to-day -day standpoint. They're missing the spiritual blessings of God. But what if they didn't believe? Could it be that God's or the unbelief in God would turn God from his purpose to bless the chosen people. In other words, can you make the statement this morning, because of Israel's unbelief, is God going to remove the promises that the oracles of God, the Old Testament specifically say about Israel? And the answer to that question is what? No. In other words, what do you mean? You're telling me, preacher, that their unbelief is not going to change God's promises? That's exactly what I'm telling you. What God has promised is true, and he will carry those things out, even in the face of unbelief. Now, what's getting ready to happen here is these Jews are going to, pre, they're going to suppose a hypothetical situation here in just a moment, okay? Now, so want, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to prepare us for what I'm getting ready to say here, what the Bible's going to say. Would a lack of faith by Israel affect God's faithfulness? Let me ask you that question, ask you that question today. Does your lack of faith affect God's faithfulness? 
No. If we all decided to bail, just leave, say, you know what, I'm leaving God today, would that affect his faithfulness? Not in the, not in the slightest. What if we decide I'm not going to walk with God anymore? What if, what if you just decided today I'm not even going to come to church anymore? I'm done. Doesn't affect God's faithfulness one bit. Doesn't affect his promises. He's still God. Let God be true. But yet, Israel, there was responsibility. There was accountability. Yet God said, my faithfulness will not be affected by your unfaithfulness. Look what he says in verse 4. God forbid. Now he's answering the question, what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. That's the strongest denial of what's being asked. God forbid, or that's unthinkable. There's no way that can be true. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. Now this speaks really to the depravity of man. Do you know that every man and woman at their heart is a liar? It's not a nice thing to call anybody. That's the last thing you might want to go home and tell people, say, look, my, I went to church today. My pastor said, I'm a liar. Well, make sure you tell the whole story and said, he said he was a liar too. Now, what immediately happens to us, when we think about lying. We think about, well, that's a wicked person. That's an evil person. That's a, you know why? Because lying is the opposite of truth. False is the opposite of what is true. Man and of himself is a liar. He says, let God be true. God forbid, don't even let a thought enter into your mind that God's truth can be changed by your lie or that your unfaithfulness can change God's truth. God is true and faithful to his word, to his promises, to his attributes, to his covenants. On the other hand, man is false in his nature. Do you know it's easier for you to lie even still being a child of God? It's easier for you to lie than it is to tell the truth. You face a situation every single day of your life of whether you're going to tell the actual truth. And oftentimes it's easier to lie than it is to tell the truth. Man at his heart is unfaithful. Man in his purest sense, his nature is to lie and push away the truth. Folks, some of you have spoken to me very directly about people that you've tried to talk to about the Lord with. And we've had some really good conversations and we've, we've had some conversations about how do, why do they keep pushing away what, they, what is true? Because man in his very nature is a liar. Man by his own nature shuns the truth. You've heard it said, it's, it's almost a cliche now. You hear preachers say it all the time. Do you want me to lie to you? They say no, but when you preach the truth, they get up and they walk away and they say, I want nothing to do with the truth. What they're saying is, give me the lie. Give me, I don't want that truth because that truth is too much for me to handle. That truth is much too deep for me. I don't want that because truth will reveal something. Truth reveals who you and I really are. When the light of God shines on you, it will show what you and I really are. There's not a one of you in this room, including my own family, that I would want to actually see 
the real me at its purest. You know why? Because the real me underneath all that, there still is a nature there that is against the truth. Now, it doesn't mean God hasn't done a work in my life, and it doesn't mean that God hasn't done a work in your life, but understand something. We are still, by human nature, we are shunners of the truth. That's what, you know why you lie? You know why I lie? To avoid the consequences. Truth sometimes brings what? It brings punishment. When your child, when they were little, and you said, did you do this? Their first response to you is no. Why do they say no? Well, that inherently proves they're sinners by birth. But it also teaches that there is an inherent desire to avoid the truth if it's going to get me into trouble. Let God be true. Man violates God's word. Man's nature is to lie. Romans 8, 7 tells us, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That tells us not only does it not want to be subject, it can't be subject to the law of God. But every man a liar. Now what is, what is Paul doing here? Look what he says. But every man a liar as it is written. He's quoting scripture. Here's the, here's the verse he's quoting. He's quoting Psalm 116, 11. I said in my haste, all men are liars. As it is written, all men are liars. That thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome them when thou art judged. Here's one thing we need to make very certain of. However faithless and whatever extent a man may lie, God is still true and God is still faithful. And then here's where this hypothetical situation starts to be brought up. That thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. God is also just in all of his judgments. He is upright in all that he does. And he will prevail no matter what sinful man lies or does. In other words, if a man tells a lie about God, it will not affect in any way, shape, or form God's prevailing over them. In other words, if I tell you a lie about God today, God will prevail over that lie. God will still, even in my lie, God will still get the glory because God is still true. I think I'm losing some of you this morning, and that's all right. God, regardless of what man does, is always true. And if you think about what he's saying here, and they're going to give him a hypothetical situation about, they're, they're going to say, okay, then what this means is that the gospel itself is a license to do wrong, because if I can do wrong and God's still going to be blessed and God's still going to get the glory, then I'll just do wrong. That's what Paul's getting ready to answer this objection. David, in his psalm of repentance in Psalm 51.4, he says these words, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. 
The repentant believer, a true repentant believer is doing this, is declaring God to be righteous while at the same time condemning himself. That's a huge difference in repentance and just saying, God, I'm sorry. What true repentance is, true repentance is declaring God to be true, declaring God to be righteous, while at the same time, that means in order for me to do that, I have to condemn myself. Every time I truly repent, I'm condemning myself. That's letting God be true. The Jews to this point have shown no signs of any genuine repentance, even though they had the advantage, they had the oracles of God. Folks, I'm telling you today, this is what's missing from the American church today, is there is no repentance. There is only a bunch of I'm sorry's. I want to keep my life the same. There is no repentance that actually leads to a condemning of myself saying, God, you are true and I'm a liar. I'm wrong. When is the last time you ever repented that way? Our repentance has been watered down to a simple five-second prayer. God, forgive me. I hope I don't do that again. And we move on. That's not repentance. And before, again, before we accuse the Jews of having all of this light and knowledge, let's remember what you and I have today. And then here's the hypothetical situation. But if our unrighteousness, that sin, can commend the righteousness of God. In other words, if my sin doesn't change what God demonstrates, that's as simple as I can put this, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous? who taketh vengeance, I speak as a man. In other words, can God justly judge a man who commits sin if that sin still brings glory to God? Could he actually still do that and be right? And the answer is what? Yes, because God's always true. But here's what they're wanting to do. The Jew is coming to the conclusion, instead of saying, I'm going to be brought to repentance, they're saying, well, if what you're saying is true, Paul, then my unrighteousness commends God's righteousness. God would not be fair if he judges me. Are you all following me? <laughs> he would not, God would be unjust if he punishes me. Because what you're saying, Paul, is my unrighteousness does, no, does nothing to the faithfulness of God. It doesn't make God any less true. So that means that God must be okay with what I'm doing because he would never, that would make God unfair and unjust. Sometimes we think the sin of another person affects God's faithfulness. I can't tell you how many people are out of church today because somebody else who they knew is out of church. I, I can't tell you how many people say, I, I don't need this anymore because somebody else, somebody else got out. Somebody else was led astray because they believed these things about God. And he says, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Well, we already know the answer to that question. God is never unrighteous. But is he unrighteous if he takes vengeance on people who even man's in their sin, if God's holiness, man's sin, here's it, here's simple as I can put it, man's sin makes God appear more holy. 
In other words, when we see the sin of man, we see our own sin, it actually makes the holiness of God even more apparent. That's as simple as I can put this. Paul says, God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? The fact that God orders all things, and Paul's answering this objection. This is probably an objection that had come from some unbelieving Jews. They had a a distorted view of the gospel that salvation by grace through Christ meant that it didn't matter how they live. Now I'm coming right to my front door and your front door. Okay, now we're, we're pulling into where this is not going to be confused. We're coming right into where we are and we have to ask ourselves the question. Does salvation by grace in Christ mean that you can live any way you want? Absolutely not. Mention that in churches today about how they live and people say, preacher, you got no reason meddling in my household. I'm not meddling. I'm just telling you right now that the grace of Christ is not a license to continue sinning and doing whatever you want because you think, well, God doesn't care. Grace is not a license to sin. There used to be a day and age, and I'm probably just as guilty as everyone else, when you would come to church and you would not only hear the the wages of sin is death, but you would also hear the holy, righteous, demand living that God wants us to live our lives holy and acceptable unto Him. How you live matters. It always has mattered. How I live matters. And folks, if I take this approach that says, listen, God doesn't care how I live because he's already saved me. I'm taking the same approach that the Jews took when they were trying to envision this hypothetical situation saying, well, sounds like to me that the gospel of grace means a license to sin. No, that's not what he was saying at all. Some Jews may have even seized upon the opportunity here to allege that the gospel actually promoted lawlessness. Remember, the Jews said you got to keep the law. The gospel says you can't keep it. So here's what the Jews say. Your gospel promotes lawlessness. Now remember, they've established their own righteousness by keeping the law. They actually think they keep the law. They say your gospel, Paul, that you're preaching, it promotes promotes lawlessness. Well, you can see the foolish thoughts here. The argument is that if unbelief highlights God's truthfulness, How can it be that unbelief counted as sin and judged by God? How can it be? If unbelief illuminates God's truthfulness, how or why can God judge sin? And therein lies the real dilemma of what Paul's talking about here. Now notice Paul makes a very important statement. Verse 5, he says, I speak as a man. You could very easily run right past this. Paul, he says these words to indicate he's speaking as a carnal man. In other words, for the sake of argument, he's, he's speaking as a man, not as a man that's trying to establish a truth. In other words, he's given this hypothetical situation as a carnal man might speak. In other words, how a man's conclusions would lead him, where he would end up, this is how he would think. If the very sin of man 
is made to turn to the glory of God, is God unjust in punishing sin? That's at the heart of the question here. Folks, I don't know how else to tell you this, but even in the sin of man, God is glorified. Now that doesn't mean it's a license. That's what the Jews were thinking here. He's, Paul, you're saying that if we sin, God's, our sin, God glories in our sin. No, what I'm telling you is sin is a transgression. Sin is a breaking of God's law. It's a falsehood. That does not affect the faithfulness or the truthfulness of God. Folks, why does sin happen? Sin is allowed by God. Sin is permitted by God. And in some cases, God even orders sin. There is sin throughout the Old Testament that was ordered directly by God that does not make Him the author of sin. There are sinful actions where God used a wicked nation to rise up against His own people in sin. Does that make God untrue? No. Does it make God the author of sin? No. Everything God does, God does for his glory. Why? Because God is true. You realize if you read your whole Bible, you're going to find some things that you're going to push back in your chair and you're going to say, that doesn't make sense. This sounds like God is being untruthful. This sounds like God might be going back on his promises if you don't understand the standard of righteousness. God is truth. God forbid, he says in verse 6, for then how shall God judge the world? God will judge the world. He does judge the world even now. Folks, there are judgments against nations and against people that are already being executed. You realize the Bible was filled with judgments. Do you know there are nations that are mentioned in your Bible that no longer exist? Where did they go? The judgment of God. Where are they? They're gone. If God were unjust, okay, here's the question. He's saying God forbid. If he, the, the suggestion is, is you're saying God is unjust. Let me ask you this question. If God is unjust or untrue, can he judge the world? I'm asking you that. If God's unjust and God is untrue, can he judge the world? No, so it can't be true. He can't be unjust and he can't be untruthful. Because if he's, any, if he's those two things, he cannot judge the world. But he can judge the world. Why? Because he's truth. You know, he's the only one. God, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Bible says it'll be Christ that will sit upon the judgment seat. You realize Christ is the only one who can judge. Why? Because he's the only truth. For if the truth, verse 7, for if the truth hath abounded hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory. Folks, there is nothing that's more opposite to the truth than a lie. A lie can never be of any advantage over truth or to the God of truth. A lie is punishable by death. It's sin. It's punishable by the deeds that we do. The truth of God can never abound through a lie. In other words, Paul very simply saying here that if the truth of God hath abounded through my sin unto his glory, then why am I judged a sinner? This hypothetical question keeps coming back up. If God is 
If the truth of God abounds through my sin to his glory, why am I judged as a sinner? In other words, folks, God's glory is still evidenced even through a sinner. The fact that God's glory is manifested through his grace to the chief of sinners, Paul would have called himself a chief of sinner. He called himself a chief of sinner. That's not the work of man, but it's the work of God. What the work of God is, is the righteousness of of his son, Christ turns even our sins, the sins that we were dead in our trespasses in, and he promotes them for his own glory. If God decides he wants to take the opposition of evil man and use it to establish his truth, so be it. He does that often. He takes the wicked actions of man and establishes his truth from it. Folks, these are some questions this morning. These are, these are questions that are coming out of the heart of people who have very proud hearts. Paul's trying to answer prideful people who are saying, well, if you're saying God's glorified in my sin, then I'm just going to keep on sinning. That's not what Paul was stating at all. Verse number eight says, let us do evil that good may come. This is their conclusion. He says in verse number eight, he says, and not rather as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. Uh, Paul's basically saying this ought not to be the conclusion we come to. In other words, if that was true, that we ought to sin because God is glorified through our sin and that gives us a license to sin, then man could say this, let us do evil that good may come. In other words, here's what they would say. My sin brings good. Now, Paul mentions, look look at the word he uses here, slanderously reported. People were reporting that that's what Paul was preaching. That would be like people, you go out the building, and that would be like people, and I'm using this very loosely to give you an illustration, that would be like them telling you, your preacher over there at that church, he's teaching you that it's okay to sin because God is glorified in it. That's what they were saying about Paul. Paul says, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. Evil does not produce anything except more of what it is. It produces more evil. Sin always produces more sin. Never, ever has God said, you have a license to sin because even through your sin, my glory is seen. Nowhere does the Bible give you a license to sin. Some may say, if my sin advances God's causes, then Why wouldn't I? You completely misunderstand entirely the gospel of grace. If your conclusion when you leave here today is, it sounded like to me I'm saved by grace, I can keep on sinning because even in my sin, God is glorified. You have completely missed the message today entirely. We never do evil. We never commit sin with the hope of advancing God's cause. Now, folks, I want you to think about how many aspects of your life that's going to affect. Nothing sinful and evil you do with the hope of advancing God's cause or the gospel is ever right to do. If God chooses to turn evil into good, as he often does, he turned evil, wicked sinners like you and I, He gave us the righteousness of his son. 
But we're not, that's not us. We're not to do evil in order to turn it into good. Folks, Christ being lifted up to that cross, Christ at Calvary brought the greatest possible benefit that you and I could ever have received. Yet you know what put him there? It was the greatest sin that could ever be committed against God. And who committed that sin? We did. You and I are the sole cause for Christ being on that cross. His love for you and I is the sole cause of why Christ was on that cross. How seriously do you think God takes sin? Yet, it would be foolish as the Jews' conclusion was, is that we ought to sin so God's grace can abound. Even Paul later on says, maybe let paraphrase, should we let sin abound so that God's grace can abound? No. They don't go together. What man did in his own sin, of course, under the ordination of God and the predetermined counsel of God, he killed the Messiah. You realize it was a Jewish council along with a Roman council who declared Christ to be guilty. So before you throw the Jews under the proverbial bus and say those Jews had all these things and yet they were responsible for putting Christ on the cross, understand something. There was Romans standing there too. There were Gentiles there. And our pride, we, we seem to say this often that if I'd have been alive during the day of the crucifixion, I wouldn't have been saying crucify him. Yeah, you would have. Apart from the grace of God, you'd still put him on that cross. Apart from the grace of God, you'd still hate the light. You'd hate what you know about him. And you would desire nothing more than to go and live a life filled with sin and pleasure had it not been for the grace of God opening your eyes and declaring you as one of his own. Folks, let God be true. This isn't permission. God is true whether you let him be true or not, but no amount of human consensus. If this whole world, if we're alive to see the day when it appears that this whole world says God is a liar, let God be true. Let Him stand. Stand upon the truth and what you know. Folks, our appeal as believers today is not to gain the national opinion. Do you understand what I'm saying today? Quit trying to convince a nation that God is true and live that truth. We are spending so much time trying to convince a lost nation that God is true. Folks, God has already declared himself to be true. If the court of public opinion declares you to be out of your mind, and I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit, I know, if they declare you're out of your mind, God is still true. If your coworkers, your, your people you go to school with, they say, listen, you are out of your mind believing all this. Let God be true. Quit trying to sway everybody's opinion over to believe what God's already declared to be true. Because even in the wicked, sinful world that we live in, God is still going to get the glory and God is still going to be true no matter how wicked this world gets. You can rest on the statement, let God be true, or you can try to win the argument all the time. 
But folks, the truth of the Bible must be believed. Sinners will always want a gospel that allows them to continue in sin. That's why they hate the doctrines that this church is preaching. Sinners will always, always want a gospel that allows us to sin. They want a gospel that allows them to come as they are and stay that way and be proud of it. Now you think about how many areas of life what I just said goes into. There are churches that are rising up with the actual sin. I'm going to finish with this. I appreciate your patience. There are actually churches rising up in this country. And this is, this is as true as I can tell you. That actually on the name of their church declares the sin that they're guilty of. And they claim to be believers. Now you tell me what's going on. You tell me that when a church gets to a place when it would actually proudly display who it's, who it's appealing to, name the sin in its title of the church, saying that that's what the Bible that they use actually teaches, that God in His love accepts you no matter what you do and you can live however you want because God is obligated to love you. It's happening all around you. It is the most, they are the most popular churches that are out there today. You know why? Because they let your sin stay. Let God be true. Let's stand all around if you would.